Edison. All right. Good evening. Well, that was entertaining getting to see me fumble around with a microphone. It's your first bit of entertainment for this evening. All right. We are going to be in the 12th chapter of the book of Mark again this evening. And as we uh, get ready to take that journey to the 12th chapter of Mark, I want to just cover with you where we've been at previously. So in the beginning of chapter 11 was actually the triumphal entry as Jesus made his way on Sunday into the city of Jerusalem. And then to follow that up, on Monday, Jesus went in and cleansed the temple. So now here we are in, uh, on the day of Tuesday where Jesus is actually out in the temple courts and he is answering questions that are being brought to him by people that are coming into the city. An important thing to note is that Jerusalem at this time, because it's Passover week, the city population is beginning to swell. You're seeing a lot of people come in to celebrate Passover. So some estimates say between 2 and 3 million people are going to be coming into the city of Jerusalem for this Passover week at this time. And a lot of those people, as they make their way that direction, have probably heard about Jesus. I mean, by now, he's three years into his ministry. There's been a ton of healing and miraculous events that have gone on. So there's probably a little bit of a rock star mystique to these folks that have heard about this guy who, in, as he asks his uh, own apostles, what do people say about me? He may be John the Baptist. He may be Jeremiah the prophet. They want to know exactly who this guy is and what he's got going on. But I think it's important to ask ourselves the question of why is Jesus being questioned? Why is he being examined? Is it just the, the superficial because people are curious, because they want to know what's going on with this guy? That might be part of it. Uh, but there's also something deeper to that. So I've entitled the message tonight, Don't Ask Me No Questions. Jesus didn't actually say that at all. He didn't say, don't ask me no questions. But anytime I get the chance to insert a Leonard Skinner song title into a message, I'm going to do it, just so you know. And a little heads up for next week. We're going to be in Tuesday, but we're going to be exiting, so Tuesday's gone is going to be the title for next week. All right? Just giving you no Leonard Skinner fans here. Sorry about that. But to start with, let's turn to the book of Exodus as we ask this, this question because it is an important one. And let's turn to the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus. And we've probably heard it uh, at some time, either through Sunday school or through church, that Jesus was the our Passover lamb, or our sacrificial lamb. But what, would, what we're going to see in Exodus chapter 12 is as this idea of Passover is being laid out, that the Passover was the 10th plague that actually plagued the nation of Egypt as Moses is trying to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. So this is the 10th and final plague and where God is actually going to pass judgment upon this entire nation. So anyone that does not have the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorpost, like this, looks a little familiar when you see the blood on the doorpost, anyone that does not have the blood of the sacrificial lamb is going to lose a son, a firstborn. They're going to lose uh, animals, the first of the, of the flock, the first of the sheep. So this is really the importance to these people of the Passover lamb. What Passover represents to them is actually them being saved, them being spared, their family being spared. 
But in verse 5 of chapter 12, here's some rules being laid out for the Passover lamb. In verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So what was actually going on during this time period, beyond just the superficial what we see, Jesus is being asked a lot of questions, is he is actually being inspected to make sure that he is worthy to be the Passover lamb. They're actually looking for blemishes or holes in his game. They're looking to see, okay, is he truly perfect? Does he truly have the qualities that are necessary? They might not have known that, but us as readers, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the the New Testament scriptures, we can see that, okay? And what Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he confirms us that Jesus is our Passover lamb. So last week, the questioning was taking place from the Herodians and from the Pharisees. They actually teamed up, ganged up against Jesus to ask him a bunch of things about taxes and, and, and other stuff like that. And Jesus, uh, just like the rock here in my photo, he laid the smack down, laid the smacketh down, if you go with the King James Version. He gave them the the big rock bottom, and they marveled at him. So next up, tonight we're going to look at the Sadducees are going to begin this off. And what's important to note about the Sadducees as we make our way that direction is that they are actually been appointed by the Romans to be in charge of uh, the religious system of the Israelites right now. Because the Roman government viewed the Pharisees, who believed in all of the Hebrew Bible, they believed in things of the Spirit, they believed in everything to do with the law and the prophets and the book of, uh, of the songs or poetry. But the, but the Sadducees did not. The Sadducees actually stuck to the first five books of the Bible, and they were materialists at heart. They didn't believe in anything spiritual. They only believed in what they could see and what they could touch, and that all God's blessings that are pronounced are merely material blessings. So most importantly, what they did not believe is they did not believe in resurrection. Okay, so let's make our way to the 12th chapter of Mark after an exceedingly long introduction. And we're going to pick up in the 18th verse. As we start here in the 18th verse, And then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him. And they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind, and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife, and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying he left no offspring. The second took her, and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her, and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. So the question that they come to Jesus with is that about a kinsman redeemer. Okay? And this is actually from Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10 address this idea of a kinsman redeemer. And what it really got down to is at this time women didn't have any rights. They had no protection if their husband died. If they didn't have a son that could then claim a portion of their inheritance, they really were left with nothing. They were poor and destitute and left to be out there on their own. So what God did in establishing this law is he gave them a way to be able to keep the inheritance in the family. So if a brother passes away with no sons, the next brother takes the wife, and if she has a son, that, that son is actually considered 
the son of the deceased brother. So in essence, this son by this woman gets to take the inheritance that his dad would have had, if that makes any sense. And this idea of how to do things uh, this way is a little bit strange to us, but it actually even predates the law. So if you look in Genesis chapter 38, you'll see the story of Tamar and Judah. It's the first place we really see it. And Judah had three sons. And the first son married Tamar, and uh, he passed away leaving no sons. So she got moved on down to the next son of Judah. And again, through some uh, rather interesting reading, if you want to pick up in the 38th chapter of Genesis, I won't get into it, but this son also died leaving no children for Tamar. So that means the third son is now going to be left to Tamar. Going to be, Tamar is going to be given to the third son. But Judah, having realized, hey, I've only got three sons, this woman must make some bad hummus or something's funky going on with the cooking in this household. So he plays her off. He says, listen, uh, he's really young. You don't need him right now. Uh, you just wait a little while, let him grow up, and then I promise, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll give him over to you. Well, he was essentially just putting Tamar off. He had no intention of allowing his third and final son to marry this woman. Well, Tamar was very crafty. So she decides, uh, a little bit unscrupulously, to dress herself up as a prostitute, and she lures and tricks Judah. And she gets pregnant by Judah, and then gives birth to a son, and sort of, uh, through some blackmail, makes uh, Judah take her as a wife. And that son's name was Perez. So hold on to that before it sounds too crazy. Judah and Tamar have a son named Perez. Just remember that piece. Well, we actually talk about the example that I want to bring up, which is that of Ruth and Boaz. Okay, so take a deep breath. We're going to talk about Ruth and Boaz for a second because this is the, the uh, kinsman redeemer example that I want to pull out. That Ruth was the daughter-in-law to a lady named Naomi. And Naomi had a husband named Elimelech. Elimelech Uh, and Naomi decide to take their family to the area of Moab. So they cross the Jordan River, and they go to live in the area of the Moabites. So both of her sons, Naomi's, take two women as wives from the Moabites, one named Orpah and one named Ruth. Now it happened that her husband Elimelech died, he passes away, and her sons also died a few years later, and they had no children. So here we've got a scenario where we've got Naomi... Orpah and Ruth, all these three women, and they have absolutely no way of being taken care of in society. So brokenhearted, uh, Naomi tells these two daughter-in-laws, listen, you go back to your family, go back to the Moabites, uh, you can give me a kiss and we'll, we'll wish each other farewell and just move on. And Orpah does just that. She gives her mother-in-law a kiss and she goes on back to her people. But Ruth does something that's really extraordinary, an extraordinary act of faith. So if you would turn with me to the book of Ruth, After Judges, go a little bit to the right. And in the first chapter of the book of Ruth, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. And all you ladies are going to feel exactly this way about your mother-in-law. Hang on just a second. Starting in verse 16, Entreat me not to leave you, or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God, where you die... I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Now that is some love that a daughter-in-law has for a mother-in-law. I mean, that's a beautiful thing, right? So she says, listen, I'm going to be with you even to death. And they proceed to make their way back to Naomi's home country, 
of Bethlehem in that area. When they get back there, uh, Ruth goes out to glean in the fields. So widows, because they didn't have any way of really uh, having any money in order to eat, they would go out after the field was harvested, and they would follow behind the harvesters and pick off whatever grain was left. So she goes to glean in the field, and she goes, as God would have it, into a field that was owned by a guy named Boaz, who is family to Elimelech. And if you can remember back to where I started this story, that's Naomi's now deceased husband. So in this process, Ruth and Boaz have some interaction, and they essentially fall in love. Uh, Boaz hears the beautiful story that, that Ruth has. It doesn't hurt that she's a young, beautiful Moabite woman. So he's got eyes for her, and he decides to go and claim her, as well as Naomi and their inheritance, as, and acts as her kinsman redeemer. So it's a beautiful story where he's able to actually redeem not only Ruth, but he's also able to redeem uh, Naomi, and uh, he's this savior, this kind of savior picture. So the Bible has types, right? The Bible has typology where we can see different types of things as we read stories. And here you see this Ruth is this type of the church where she's clinging on to this belief. She's holding on in hopes of a redeemer. And you see Boaz, it's very much this type or this picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament as this kinsman redeemer that's going to come and save these people. And turn with me, if you would, to the fourth chapter, just a little bit to the right, and look as Boaz goes and makes this claim to Ruth to become her kinsman redeemer. This is all done at the city gates where all official business takes place. And starting in verse 11 of chapter 4, what the people say in this blessing they pronounce on them. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming from your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. What a blessing, right? What a blessing. But I won't stop right there. One more place to turn for this. Go to the Matthew chapter 1. We're going to look at verse 3. We're going to dig into a genealogy just so you can see what this is all going to pull together. You've seen the blessing that the people pronounce. And then if we go to the very first chapter of Matthew and look at verse 3 to begin. And Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And then if we skip down just a little bit into verse 5, you'll see Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. So here's this, this blessing that is put upon Ruth and Boaz in this relationship that actually ends up becoming prophecy, as we see these people prophesying that not only would their marriage be blessed and this union be blessed like Judah and Tamar was, but she would be in the line of King David and also in the line of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that's actually standing before these guys who are questioning him about being a kinsman redeemer. I know that was a long way to go with that, but this concept of a kinsman redeemer is not something that's just a, a cast-off because twice in Jesus' genealogy, and anytime we see something repeated in the Bible, you know it's important, is that a kinsman redeemer shows up in his genealogy. All right? So this beautiful story kind of gets all pulled together because ultimately what Jesus is, is he is our kinsman redeemer. Just like the story of Ruth and Boaz, we're the church 
And he is that redeemer that is going to come back and take what is rightfully his and what, what was originally given up or lost. So at the time of the fall, when Adam uh, sins, and the, the, he was given dominion by God over the earth, that at that time, he actually gave that up during the fall. So if you would, I, I lied a little bit earlier. I said Matthew was the last place we turn on this. We're going to go back to Revelation. Look at the fifth chapter with me. And we sang part of this earlier tonight. But if you go back to Revelation in the fifth chapter, we're going to see, as John sees this vision of this scroll being held up with seven seals, that is actually the title deed to the earth. That is the possession of the earth itself and all things in it. And what John sees, starting in verse 4, So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open it and read the scroll or look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And skip ahead to verse 9. And they sang a new song, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and every tongue and every people and nation. So our ultimate kinsman redeemer is none other than Jesus Christ. So this concept of a kinsman redeemer and how this all plays out for us is not a, not a throwaway. And what I think I, I take from this, as we look at these guys, what they're really doing is they're asking a question and presenting this elaborate story based on what they see, right? They're looking through their eyes, through a material world, and they can only ask a very material question. So let's look in, in Mark 12 and see how Jesus responds as he stands before them. So picking back up in verse 24, And Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. So their mistake is that they were looking at the Scripture through their own eyes, much like I do a lot of time, and they had neglected the power of God. They had neglected what God could actually do. They had, they had looked at this situation that they'd concocted about these seven brothers who married this woman, and, and their expectation was, we don't believe in resurrection anyway, but if, if there is a resurrection and we all get up there, it's going to look like something out of the Jerry Springer show, right? Like it's going to look like an all-out fight for whose woman is this? Because they were looking at strictly from a, from a, a sexual standpoint or from an earthly standpoint when you really think about it, Right? They were, they were trying to figure out whose wife this is and forgot the whole point of the message, which is God has the power to resurrect. You don't believe it. You don't see it. And Jesus' point here is he didn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These guys are very much alive, which is important for us to understand, is that people that pass on are not dead. They're not, they're not gone. They may be gone with what I can see with these lenses, but they are very much alive because they've neglected this, this spirit. They've, in essence, limited the power of God based on what they could see, what they could touch, and what they could taste. 
The other night for dinner, we had deli mix chicken taquitos. Have you had these things? These deli mix chicken taquitos? They're fantastic. They really are. This is nothing like a good Twinkie story, but it's as good as I can do. But the boys ate their fruit, they ate their vegetables, but they absolutely refused to touch the deli mix chicken taquito. Because on the outside, it kind of looked like this brownish gray thing that was sort of shaped like a missile. I mean, they didn't know what was going on there. But what they were missing out on, because they didn't have the faith to believe what their dad was telling them, that this is really good, this is awesome, they wouldn't bite into it. And I'm like that, right? I don't have the faith a lot of times to believe what God has there for me. I've just got to pick it up and take a bite. I'm missing out on the deli mix chicken taquito because I don't have enough faith, right? So have a little bit of faith. The next time you're at the grocery store, open that freezer section up and get yourself, they make them in chicken or beef. Sorry, no. have a little bit of faith as we think about the power of God and what he can do in our life. He's not limited by the things of this earth, right? So out in the audience, listening to all of this back and forth is another young man, a scribe, as he's going to be described here in just a minute. But in Matthew's account, he calls him a lawyer. So he's a Pharisee. He's someone that clings to the law, and his heart is stirred a little bit, right? He's, he's seeing and he's hearing some things and some teaching that's unlike anything he's ever experienced. So let's read about what he comes to the master with. <clears throat> Starting in verse 28, Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reason together, perceiving that he answered them well, he asked, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, The first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus' response is to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and he quotes to him what they know as the Shema. And what it says about the Shema is that all Jews were to say this at their getting up and their going down. So twice a day when they wake up, they're to say this. When they go to bed, they're to say it again. And in Hebrew, what it actually is, I'm going to try not to butcher this, is Shema Yisrael Yahweh Elohim Yahweh Echad. That's the Shema, right? And it has some interesting words in here. It uses the word Elohim in the middle of it, between Yahweh, which is the YHVH, the unpronounceable, because they didn't know exactly if it was Yahweh or Jehovah, a name of God, and in the middle it has Elohim. But Elo is actually the singular name for God. Elohim indicates it's plural. And at the end of the sentence, he says Echad, which actually means is one, is how we translate it, but it truly defined in the Hebrew, it means compound unity. It's like an egg. An egg has a shell, it has a white, it has a yolk, but it is an egg, but it is echad. It is compound unity. It is all together in one. So tucked into this Shema is the idea of a triune Godhead. So anybody that didn't care about Hebrew, I probably just wore you out with that a little bit, but I wanted to pull that out because I think it is fascinating as Jesus answers these questions that a part of the triune Godhead is actually standing right in front of these people answering them, right? How, how amazing is that? But Jesus doesn't just, uh, I put there, give these two commandments, uh, but he's, he's got the same 
heart behind it. I'm sorry, Jesus doesn't give one. Oh, sorry, I forgot my point, and I remembered my point. Now you're going to hear my point. What Jesus does is this man comes to him and asks him one question, but he comes with a, with a true heart. He comes out of real curiosity and wanting to know more about God. And when we do that, I think it's amazing that more often than not, instead of just giving us the answer we were looking for, he gives us the answer and then a little bit extra. He actually gives two answers instead of just one answer. He says, all right, this is the first commandment, but the second one is like it. He adds on to it. He gives them a little bit more. And in Matthew twenty two forty, in the synoptic account of this, in Matthew twenty two forty, what Jesus says there is on these two commandments hang all the law and all the prophets. So on these two commandments, everything that's right in here is hangs on these things, these two common ideas. And if we simplified it, if we boiled it all down to what Jesus is saying is the two commandments are this, love God, love people. That's it. Love God and love people. And when he says, love thy neighbor, who is he talking about? Is he talking about your literal neighbor? No. When Jesus, asked, when Jesus is asked that, who's my neighbor? The answer ends up being everybody. We'll make it easy. Everybody's your neighbor. So love God, love people. And what Paul says in Romans 13, verse 8, if you want to turn with me back to Romans in the 13th chapter, in verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So if we wonder, do we live by the law, do we not live by the law, the bottom line is this. If we love, we've fulfilled the law, whether we think we live by it or not. If we truly come from that place. So picking up and looking how Jesus answered in, I'm sorry, how the scribe, the lawyer actually answers Jesus back in verse 32. And so the scribe said to him, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And now when Jesus saw that He answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question Him. So I'm going to turn back to Micah in chapter 6. All the way back to the Old Testament in the book of Micah. Go to where the guy got swallowed by the fish and go to the right. And in the book of Micah in the 6th chapter in the 6th verse, this is what Micah says. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? 10,000 rivers of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That right there is effectively what 
This man has just learned in what Jesus is teaching, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I don't know about you, but to love other people is not that hard for me, as long as I don't know you that well. But as soon as I get to know you a little bit, it gets to be a whole lot more complicated, right? So I, I had this particular person in my life, and, and, uh, and they'd hurt me, you know? They'd hurt me in a bad way, and, and I, could, I could do a pretty good job pretending like I had forgiven and I'd moved on, but in reality... I was still holding on to things. I was still kind of verklempt about it, to steal a word from Pastor Mike Harrison. I was all tied up about it. I just couldn't release. I couldn't let that go. So uh, through a message some probably six, seven months back, Mike challenged us to pray for that person. If you've got someone in your life that you cannot get past what they've got against you or what you, what you really have against them, to pray for them, to go earnestly in prayer that God would change your heart or their heart or both. And so I did that, and I really felt like a change, and then I felt God telling me I needed to reach out. And because I am a spiritual giant that you folks don't even understand how gigantic I am, you know what I did? Nothing. I did squat. I didn't reach out. I had a lot of great excuses, though. I mean, you should write some of these down. I'm busy. I'm sure it wouldn't work. It's a waste of my time, blah, blah, blah. You come, we pick one. You come up with it. But I would not do it. And it got to the point where about a week and a half ago that I couldn't even think about this person without coming to tears, you know? I was really broken about it. And I realized that I had to do, I had to act on it. So laying in bed, not able to sleep, after 10 o'clock, which if you've got four children, 10 o'clock is like 2 a.m. to everybody else. That's late because it's going to happen early. They're going to be right back up again. These things, these little beasts don't sleep apparently. But... (laughs) I'm laying in bed. I'm like, all right, Lord, if you want, I will, I will submit to you. I will send a text to this person, but I'm going to tell them we're going to meet tomorrow. What do you think of that, Lord? If, this, if you're in this thing, you're going to just make it happen. It'll happen tomorrow. I'll put you in a box. So I send a text, set the phone on the, on the nightstand. Like, here we go. There's no way they're going to answer. Oh. <laughs> <sighs> I look, sure, but I'm busy. Uh, how about in the morning? I'm like, oh, in the morning? Nobody does morning like I do. I'll do morning. Here you go, God. How about this one? How about 5 a.m.? <laughs> what do you think of that? You want to do morning? We'll do 5 o'clock in the morning. Like, there, that. We'll stop it, Lord. I'm doing your will. Look at me. I'm doing what you asked. I reached out. It's 5 a.m. or nothing. Set the phone down. <laughs> Oh, stink! Pick up the phone. Sure, sounds good. Just like that. Five o'clock in the morning, and now here I am. I'm going to have to meet with this person that hurt me deeply. And by the world standards, I really had every right to not ever talk to them again. Shouldn't have, probably. Uh, But instead, you know, we had an hour and a half meeting. Did everything come out of it that I really thought was going to come out of it? Probably not. Maybe it did. I don't know, but I know this that leaving there and knowing what I talked about and how I represented myself and how I attempted to project the love that God has shown to me these past year and a half to two years, I was able to say I did it, you know? God, I I did that thing, and I'm not burdened with that. I'm still burdened for the situation, but I'm not burdened with my lack of response. 
And I think that's really what we're called here to do, is when it comes down to loving God and then loving people. We can't love people until we love God. And we have to understand that we can only love him because he first loved us, because he was the one that was tied up and lashed over and over again and didn't say a word because he loved us that much. I don't love that much. I'm trying. But that's the reason we can love. And it has to go this direction and go out to be able to love people that are in that spot. And I got a phone call tonight from a guy about an hour ago, and I'm going to try to get through this. But his comment to me was, you know, Brock, I really can't stand Christians. (laughs) He said, in fact, I'm going to be honest with you. He said, I'm going to be brutally honest, and I'd never admit this to anybody else. I hate Christians. He said, and the reason I hate them is because every one of them I know is a hypocrite. They all tell me that I'm supposed to love this way, and yet every time I'm around them, they say they love, and then they've got this whole group of people they don't love. They all come with more rules about who they don't love than who they do love. And all I see is exclude, exclude, exclude. Hey, come on in. Come on in to church, brother. We're going to tell you all the people we don't like. Come on in. But here's a list of people we can't stand. And I said, you know, uh, my friend, here's the deal. I'm getting ready to, in an hour, go talk about love, and that's not at all what I'm reading. That's not how we're supposed to act. That's not what's in here. So what you're seeing, it's not true. It's not the love that Jesus is talking about. And if I turn to John chapter 13, and if I look at verse 34, this is what I see. A new commandment I give to you, to love one another as I have loved you, that you, love, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciple if you have love for one another. See, the only way we're going to get through this and to be able to show that world out there, they can't stand to be around Christians because they see rules and things that they don't love is to love is to show them that we, in fact, do love those people that you think we don't. May not love what we do, may not love what they're about, but we love them. We care deeply about them. And that's the challenge that we really have for ourselves here tonight. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you.